Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And I'm Lauren Gorn. And today we're getting enthusiastic about when linguists keep using the same example texts over and over again. But first, have you ever wished that Lingthusiasm could be a little, um, less enthusiastic? Most of the time, no, but we've heard some complaints. Actually, we heard one person once said to us that they tried to listen to Lingthusiasm to fall asleep and they couldn't do it because we were too high energy and enthusiastic. Hmm. <laughs> Many years later, we have now taken on board this comment. And also, just for fun, we have made a slowed down, soothing version of Lingthusiasm where we read a bunch of linguistic sample sentences, some of which we mentioned in this episode, uh, in much longer and more relaxed form. Get many soothing sentences of linguistics nonsense read to you by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Lingthusiasm. Uh, plus, of course, get access to a bunch of other bonus episodes at the usual speed and volume also on Patreon and help us keep the show running. If you're interested in why we chose the sentences that we read in the bonus, we'll be talking about that this episode, so keep listening. Lauren, can I tell you a story? Yes, please. This story is about the North Wind and the Sun. Hmm. The North Wind and the Sun were disputing which was the stronger when a traveller came along wrapped in a warm cloak. They agreed that the one who first succeeded in making the traveller take his cloak off should be considered stronger than the other. Then the north wind blew as hard as he could, but the more he blew, the more closely did the traveller fold his cloak around him. And at last the north wind gave up the attempt. Then the sun shone out warmly, and immediately the traveller took off his cloak. And so the north wind was obliged to confess that the sun was the stronger of the two. The end. A classic Aesop's fable. In fact, literally mm -hmm. one of Aesop's fables there. But I know it specifically as the example text that people record to illustrate the sounds in a given language. Yeah. So I think I actually I had like an illustrated children's picture book of this when I was a child. Because of your interest in phonetics across the world's languages? Uh, yes, that is definitely why my parents bought me this as like a five-year-old. Uh, <laughs> mm. uh, no, I, I think they just liked the moral, you can do more with persuasion than you can with force. Hmm. Which was the last sentence in the illustrated Aesop's Fable version that I had as a child. But imagine my surprise when many years later in linguistics school, I encountered this story as a classic example text. This text gets translated into many different languages, and it's read as the example passage of what it sounds like to tell a story in a language as part of a series called Illustrations of the International Phonetic Alphabet. The Journal of the International Phonetic Association, this is the one I think where all of the articles used to actually be written in phonetic transcription mm. rather than in standard orthography, which is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Now they've moved to standard orthography, but what is also fantastic is for these articles that illustrate the way that different languages sound, you can download and listen to the recordings that are made as part of those journal articles, including recordings of a narrative passage, which is usually the North Wind and the Sun. I guess it's sort of a, a relatively classic passage. It does involve sort of personifying the elements, but many cultures do allow you to personify the elements. And I think some other passages that sometimes gets used as comparative linguistic passages are like particular mm. stories from the Bible. Yeah. Because the Bible's been translated in a bunch of languages, but this is not great because people often use a 
sort of stylized, formal style of language for biblical texts that really doesn't reflect how people mm-hmm. talk in an everyday life. And much as Aesop's fables are a bit culturally specific, the Bible's also very culturally specific. I do also appreciate when they were recording examples of New Zealand English, they did translate it to the southerly wind and the sun to make it more geographically appropriate. Oh, excellent. Yes. Hmm. And they do sort of change out the word sometimes, whether you have the sun shone or the sun shined, sort of depends on variation. So sometimes they have this exact text being read aloud, and sometimes they sort of let people retell it in their own words. And of course, if you're translating into lots of different languages, you can localize that translation however you want. You told me a story. I think it's only fair that I tell you a story. Oh, yes, please. Uh, you ready? Yes. Okay. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags and we will go meet her Wednesday at the train station. This is a bit of a different style of story to me than the Aesop's Fables style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, p- small plastic snake. I don't think this one was found in ancient Greece. Uh, and perhaps less of a you know direct moral to this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it also is a little bit directive, like, oh, it's my job to call Stella. All right. Uh, <laughs> so this story comes from the Speech Accent Archive, mm-hmm. which is a website that has many hundreds probably a thousand, I wasn't able to get a precise count, of speech samples of people speaking English who have both a variety of accents of English and also whose first language is something else and have a variety of non-native accents in English, all reading this same English paragraph so that if you want to know what Ugandan English sounds like, you can listen to some audio clips of some people from Uganda reading this passage uh, and you can be like, all right, you know, here's what it sounds like. So everyone's reading the same thing. We have a nice clear benchmark. It has lots of different sounds, lots of S-y sounds I noticed as I was trying to read this out to you. (laughs) Yeah, it's got like slabs and snake and snack and store and spoons. So a lot of these sort of S plus consonant clusters Mm -hmm. and uh, several of these things into three, the, 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 and you get a bunch of different sounds and sound sequences. And the note on the Speech Accent Archive website says this paragraph contains practically all the sounds of English, Hmm. which I think is because depending on your variety of English, exactly which sounds are in it and not can vary, but they've made an effort to get at least most of them. And the fact that I've made this effort to get all the sounds means that uh, perhaps the meaning of the story becomes less important. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. It's a little silly. It gets a little bit silly trying to make something that sounds sufficiently coherent, but you're really focused on the individual sounds. Yeah, six spoons of fresh snow peas. I don't know that I really measure snow peas in spoons, but you know, people can read somewhat nonsensical text and that's also okay. And this is very English-centric. There's not an effort to like translate this story into other languages because it's focused around trying to get a specific range of sounds in English. And I just know this as the Stella passage. Yeah, I would call this one Please Call Stella. I think that's just mm-hmm. what I would refer to it as. There's also some passages. So there's a longer passage that's about rainbows, known as the Rainbow Passage. Okay, the Rainbow Passage. Yep, (laughs) which I will not read in full because it's sort of like a, a whole page. But it begins, when the sunlight strikes raindrops in the air, they act as a prism and form a rainbow. The rainbow is a division of white light into many beautiful colors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sweet. Mm hmm. 
And the Rainbow Passage and another passage called the Grandfather Passage are sort of familiar to me from linguistics and came up recently because a friend mentioned that they're used in people who are doing gender voice training. Okay. So if you're trans, you want your voice to be perceived as a different gender. Something that some people do is adjust the way they produce certain vowels and consonants so that they sound more characteristic of a particular gender. Mm -hmm. And people often practice on particular reading passages, which are part of sort of speech training. And you can record yourself and sort of keep an idea of what your progress is over time. And this Rainbow Passage and the Grandfather Passage, which is another one um, that's sort of about your grandfather, this very old school kind of guy who wears a frock coat. Um, <laughs> He's eccentric but sound of mind, if I recall. Yes. Uh, I think this is a very old school grandfather. I don't think anyone's mm -hmm. current grandfather wears a frock coat these days, unless they're no. a historical reenactor or something. <laughs> But these are some passages that sometimes gets used in speech training. There's a really interesting interview on the Gender Reveal podcast with Renee Yoxon, who does uh, trans voice coaching, if anyone wants to know more about how that goes. And it's really fascinating, the lives that these example texts live as they kind of continue on in the world. Another set of example sentences are the Harvard sentences, which are around 700 plus sentences that are used mostly in uh, training speech text synthesis programs or testing telecommunication systems. And the Harvard sentences, there's like 720 of them, hmm. about like 10 word sentences. So there's tons of them. And they're also designed for sort of their phonetic value. And they're designed to contain English sounds in a range of different contexts. So for example, in English, we say the k sound in keen, slightly differently from how we say the k sound in cool or in stick. So you need to have words that contain it at the beginning of the word, at the end of the word, before several different vowels, so that when you're trying to put it into words, it sounds a little bit less robotic. This is why they also get their other name, which is the Harvard balanced sentences, because they have a balance of the most commonly occurring English speech sounds in a balanced range of contexts. Right. And we thought maybe this would make them a little bit extra soothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also there's 700 of these, so we can't read them all to you in this episode because that would get a little bit boring and tedious and you might go to sleep. And in fact, that is a perfect application for recording all 720 of them as a soothing ASMR experience. So wait, can we call this Lingthusiasmr? <laughs> I think we can. <laughs> So ASMR, if you haven't encountered it, is the autonomous sensory meridian response, just sort of the relaxed chills feeling that people feel down their spine when you listen to certain kinds of slow and relaxing sounds. I'm not entirely sure that our episode will induce ASMR. Uh, we'll have to test that empirically. Uh, but I do mm -hmm. think it sounds very soothing uh, and will probably help you sleep. Please let us know if it works, if you think that this is fun. <laughs> I have to say, from the experience of recording them, they are such boring nonsense that they become kind of surreal. Yeah, I really felt like I was sort of zoning out as I was reading them. So we read them sort of 10 at a time and took turns. And by the end of the 10 list, I would be sort of like, oh, I'm like very slow. My heart rate has gone down. I'm sort of relaxed. Um, I think it's important to recognize that when people are reading example sentences, that is work. And it takes concentration to try to read exactly the words on the page in a consistent tone of voice and not stumble over words. Uh, we definitely had to re-record some bits and like edit them back together to make them sound smooth. 
Having recorded other people for phonetics experiments, this just once again reminded me of how much respect I have for people and their patience and their willingness to participate in recording sentences like this for analysis. And thank you to our patrons for letting mm -hmm. us do not only the podcast in general, but also occasionally fun, weird experiments like this. Let us know if it actually helps you sleep uh, or if this is fun or we should never do it again. Uh, all of these are options. Did you notice anything else about the content of the sentences as you were reading all 700, Lauren? I did. We, uh, I have to say, did skip a few sentences because they did not produce the kind of chill, relaxed vibes we were going for, especially the ones about forest fires and cutting off people's heads. Yeah, some of the sentences were a bit violent. Uh, <laughs> and we thought, you know, you're trying to fall asleep and then you hear like the prince ordered the person's head to be cut off. You're like, I don't know if I want to hear that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though it's sort of a fairy tale setting, it's still not very cheerful. So we didn't record all 720. We thought we would sacrifice sort of balanced scientific accuracy for being able to fall asleep asleepitude. But I noticed that sentences that we kept, which was most of them, had this sort of agricultural vibe. Which is pretty funny given that these are from the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> Yeah, they're from the 60s. Like, they had cars in the 1960s, and yet mm -hmm. there's, like, one car in all of these sentences, and there's a lot of horses. <laughs> there are a lot of horses, indeed. <laughs> and wagons and carts. <laughs> and there's, like, one bus and one train and one car, and there's all these horses and wagons. Uh, it's just sort of pastoral, yeah. I also appreciate the person who wrote them who put all of the examples with fudge in there, but that might be just because I was hungry while we were recording. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we did consider briefly trying to come up with, you know, replacement sentences that would still be sort of phonetically balanced, but it's a lot of work to come up with sentences that like contain certain sounds in particular combinations and also make enough sense that you can read them, even if they're some of them are a little bit silly. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of phonetic elicitation is done by just getting people to say a particular single word, maybe inside a sentence, so that you get it kind of in a more natural environment rather than just listing individual words where you get this list intonation as people read through the list. So if you want people to say, for example, a bunch of colors, you shouldn't just have them say red, orange, yellow, green. You could instead do, I saw the red thing. I saw the blue thing. I saw the green thing. And then you can sort of cut out the red and blue and green from the middle of I saw the whatever thing. So it's in the middle like that. Is that right? Yeah. And sometimes in phonetics, we're so interested in just the sounds themselves. We don't even care if the words make sense, let alone the sentences. And so people will come up with nonsense words that they can record to get particular sounds. I have a fun story about that from when I was an undergrad, where we had to come up with a bunch of sort of nonsense words for stimuli. Only one of the words that we came up with, I forget what it was. I think all of our words were like consonant, vowel, consonant. So it was something that was like a slang swear word or like word related to some sort of risque topic. And the prof was like, oh, we can use this word, right? And all the students sort of look at uh -oh. each other and start giggling. <laughs> and we're like, who's going to tell him? <laughs> Okay, excellent public service announcement. If you are creating nonsense words for a phonetic study, uh, maybe run them by a couple of your students first, just to check. <laughs> run them by somebody who has a bit of a dirty mind, look them up on Urban Dictionary, you know, ask mm -hmm. a few people if you're not working in a language where you have something like Urban Dictionary, just to make sure that they're not actually a word that's going to have your participants giggling. So far, we've been discussing sentences and texts for studying the sounds of language. 
But there are also some commonly reoccurring texts that people use when they're looking at sentences or even larger units of language to study. Yeah, one of these is what I know as the frog story, which is a wordless picture book that has like a little boy and a frog in a jar and the frog like escapes and the boy and the dog have to go after the frog and they find the frog on a log and it's very charming and there's no words there. Uh, so people just have to, you sort of look through it once and then you go through it again and retell that story based on the pictures. I have a copy of this book and there are like five or six in the series and they're super charming. But every time I pull it off my shelf, I get mildly surprised that it's not called Frog Story. It's called Frog, <laughs> Where Are You? <laughs> oh, I always forget this because in linguistics, people just call it the Frog Story. Mm -hmm. And it's by Mercer Meyer from 1969. You can tell when you're in someone's talk and they're saying, you know, the boy looked for the frog behind the tree and you're like, I know how you elicited this sentence. <laughs> mm hmm. But the nice thing about it not having written words is that you can use it with children, you can use it with speakers of a bunch of different languages. It does have some relatively culturally specific concepts like, you know, do you recognize pictures as sort of telling a story in a particular order? And like, is this cartoon drawing of a frog legible to you as a frog? But it is at least more culturally abstract than just having people like directly translate a particular type of story word by word. And I appreciate it because it leads to some really charming example sentences when people are discussing, say, how the structure of sentences works or maybe how people put together a story in a particular culture. Yeah. And it's got that sort of, you know, the, the frog runs away and then the frog is found and it follows that sort of narrative arc of losing something and then finding it, which is, I think, relatively straightforward to tell in a bunch of languages. And a book is very easy to take with you regardless of where you're doing your analysis. You don't need to have electricity or anything compared to another really common thing that's used to get people to tell stories, which is a short video called The Pear Story. The Pear Story is so charming. It's this six-minute film that was produced at the University of California at Berkeley in 1975, and it has no language in it. There's sound effects, but no one says anything. And so you have this sort of story that they showed to a bunch of speakers of languages who are asked to then retell the story from the images. And you can tell it's from 1975 because <laughs> people have amazing pants and hair from the era. Oh yeah, there is for sure some flair in those pants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the story is sort of roughly having just watched it. So this is on YouTube if you want to watch it for yourself. Mm -hmm. But there's a man who's a, a farmer, I guess. He's sort of got a kerchief around his neck um, and he's climbing a ladder up a tree, uh, picking some pears and putting them in a basket. And he, you know, picks a whole basket full of pears and sets it down uh, with the other basket of pears below the tree and goes back up on the ladder. And then some guy comes by with a goat for no apparent reason. And... <laughs> <laughs> Yes. As you do. Uh, and then a little boy comes by on a bicycle mm -hmm. and picks up one of the big baskets of pears and puts it on like the front handlebars of the bike mm. and drives off with it. Uh-uh-uh. Right. <laughs> and then the kid on the bike runs into like, another group of three kids. And one of them has like a little paddle thing that has like an elastic thing with like a ball on the end. And they're sort of like bouncing the paddle ball thingamajig. Yeah, that thing. And the kid on the bike runs into a rock and like falls off the bike and the pears fall all over the place. And the kid's okay, but the other kids like help him put the pears back in the basket and he goes off on the bike again, except he's always oh, lost his hat and the kids give his hat back as well. And then bike kid goes off into the sunset and the other kids go off and they've secretly each got a pear in their pocket that they like took as thank you Aww, for <laughs> kids. Uh, helping with the, the basket. 
And then the farmer comes back down the tree and is like, oh my god, where did my pears go? Where did the whole basket go? And the three kids who were helping were like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the end of the story. <laughs> One thing your retelling reminds me of is that this is actually really nicely shot. It's clear that it's in California, right? It feels like they actually got some film people to shoot a really, really nice film. Right. And I think they got like actors mm. to be the characters because the characters sort of look like they're kind of the wrong age for grad students. <laughs> uh, which is often what happens when people are shooting uh, a elicitation video on no budget. <laughs> right. Like it's not just like you and five of your friends from grad school because like the kids are too young to be grad students and the farmer looks sort of middle aged. You know, there are some middle aged grad students, but it's less like, okay, you got a bunch of people in their 20s to, to do this, 20s or 30s to do this. It's beautifully shot. Like, it's got nice lighting and all of this stuff. And like, they got a goat. Um, I don't know where they got the goat. Well, the goat reminds me that when they put this pear story together, and it is literally called the pear story, mm -hmm. unlike frog story, which has a secret other name. When they put this together, they deliberately had these things they were trying to see whether they would come up or how people would do them in narratives across language. So the goat being there that has nothing to do with the story is whether people pay attention to background information. The fact that we start off, you said, you know, a farmer at the start, and when he comes back, he's the farmer, you're re-identifying mm -hmm. the same person. Even the paddle ball little bouncy thingy thing was deliberately something that people might not have a name for immediately so that they would have to do essentially what we did and try and negotiate what it's called. <laughs> so you learn the languages word for like thingamajig or yeah. like toy or like I don't like the way you describe something you don't necessarily have words for because languages do have ways of describing things they don't have words for and so if you put something that the word for which is very obscure I don't know what the word for this is in English uh then people have to sort of figure out how to describe it yeah I guess I don't know probably all languages don't have words for pears but presumably you might say fruit or something like that if you yeah. didn't have a specific word for pear not getting too bogged down in the detail but what makes it really powerful uh is that there was a book about analyzing pair storytellings in the 1980s. People have continued to use the pair story. And so it starts to become something where you can kind of benchmark experience in storytelling across languages. For example, there's this really great paper about Maitai, which is a language in the northeast of India, where Shobana Chalaya was working with this language and noticed that when people tell stories, there's not an expectation that you necessarily say who is doing what, that it should be apparent from oh. context. So you might not necessarily say the boys or the farmer every time they do something. Instead, you focus more on the actions, and it's through the conversation that people keep track of who's doing what. But it was really hard to know exactly who was doing what in a story that people were telling about, you know, what happened in their own village or, you know, in their own family last week. And so she recorded a bunch of people telling the pear story and could literally count the number of times they said, the farmer, the boy. And because the researcher already knows what happens in the video, it gives you this sort of shared common ground. Uh, and generally, the task is something like you have people watch a video and then you have them retell the story of the video to someone who hasn't seen it and say, okay, tell it to this person who hasn't seen it, or tell it to me, and you say that you haven't seen it. And it's a relatively natural-ish context. Like, people often mm -hmm. know a story that they're telling to someone else who hasn't experienced it. I mean, it's as natural as sort of you can get for something that's relatively constrained so that everyone's doing the same task. Whereas the frog story, you have people, like, flip through page by page and narrate what's happening on each page. Mm -hmm. The pair story tends to be you have people watch the whole thing and then retell the story afterward. And because it's been recorded in a bunch of other languages, 
they could literally go back and say, yeah, in Mai Tai, there really are fewer times that people say who is doing what compared to the existing tellings that we have in languages like English. So, a really neat example of how this kind of task can be really helpful in understanding how different languages do storytelling differently. Yeah. Do you have any examples of this from the gesture literature? I do indeed, because you can immediately tell when something is situated in the gesture literature because they make people watch a particular Sylvester and Tweety Bird cartoon from Warner Brothers. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah. They didn't get a bunch of University of California grad students to act it out in a field? They did not. uh, But anytime you see an example of, you know, a cat climbing or a cat swinging or something about a bird, uh, you almost always know that it's taken from a particular cartoon called Canary Row, which is where Tweety Bird is in one apartment building and across the road, Sylvester's in the other. Mm -hmm. And Sylvester in this eternal quest to get to Tweety Bird. Uh, There's lots of different actions that Sylvester performs. And when you get people to retell it, you get really great gestures out of them. And so I feel when I read a gesture studies paper and they've played this and it doesn't require language, so you can play it to speakers of English or Turkish or Japanese. Every time I see example sentences from Canary Row, I just feel this like, aww, <laughs> it's a gesture paper. <laughs> It's cute how stories like this can also become part of linguistics as a cultural area mm-hmm. where you like feel part of gesture studies as a culture by seeing the Sylvester and Tweedy one. Like the pear story was part of my grad school tradition when we did a field methods class. It was like, okay, we're going to learn how to use the pear story when it comes to elicitation. And I took other field methods classes where we didn't use the pear story. But in this one, it was sort of part of that enculturation. And so there's probably other examples of texts that are canonical sets of examples in other lineages of linguistics. We're just sort of showing the ones that are available to us in our context. Yeah, I know Frog Story is really popular with people doing language documentation because you can just pack a book in your field kit. And uh, it's also popular with child language acquisition researchers because parent-child interaction around books is a relatively common thing, especially in Western cultures. And so it becomes fun the more you work in these areas and you begin to recognize recurring texts from the examples that people produce in talks or in papers. You know, I think we could really, if we ever wanted to get into publishing a line of children's books, you know, produce like The North Wind and the Sun, Please Call Stella, like you could illustrate that like a children's book. You know, I guess Mercer Mayer already has the copyright mm-hmm. on the frog story, but, you know, maybe he'd like to produce a special edition just for, for linguists. You know, you could you could have a whole line of, of like linguistically relevant children's books. Exceedingly charming. <laughs> Somebody commissioned this from us. <laughs> So getting people to produce sentences either by reading passages or reading stories or retelling stories is one way to come up with example sentences to illustrate a feature of a language. But there is also a long tradition in linguistics of people coming up with example sentences. Right, because like we all know at least one language in some capacity. And sometimes you study a language by going and finding a speaker uh, or a signer and saying, hey, can you say this? Or can you say some stuff for me? And I'll record it and I'll analyze it. But you yourself are also someone who knows a language. And so if I want to say, okay, you know, 
please call Stella is a sentence in English, I don't necessarily need to go and ask 20 of my friends to be like, yeah, I think that any English speaker would just understand me. So there's sort of the like armchair inside your office method of saying, yeah, if I think that, you know, the dog chased the cat is a grammatical sentence in English, I don't necessarily need to go ask like 100 people just to confirm this relatively basic thing. And then there's the sort of slightly expanded version, which is, okay, I think this is a sentence in English. And then you do a talk about your paper for like a research group or at a conference. And, you know, there's a dozen people in the room or there's 20 or 40 people in the room. And if they all speak English or French or whatever the language of your paper is in, and everyone in the room sort of agrees, yeah, we think this is the sentences that you've presented in this language are are valid, then it's like you've sort of surveyed those 20 or 40 people. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that linguists should give themselves more credit for this. So there are really interesting papers trying to replicate these sort of grammaticality judgments. And like, what if we tested some of these sentences on 100 people and see, like, sometimes there are regional differences, or people will have individual idiolect differences uh, about which things they find work for them as a sentence or not. And it is worth testing some of these. But, but often, if you have actually tested them on everybody in your department or everybody who was attending this particular conference talk, that is actually running them by like 20 people or 40 people, which is a pretty good statistical number. There is also a tradition of creating sentences and getting people to check them when it's not a language you have strong intuitions about yourself. And one of my favorite things to do while doing this is to create sentences that I know people won't find grammatical, <laughs> just to double check I haven't missed anything about how things might work in the language. And to reinforce that you are not expecting them to just say yes for every single sentence. Yeah. So, uh, you know, running past, uh, can we say, please, Stella, call? People are like, no, what? No. Yeah. <laughs> And I do feel sorry for people who I do this to who are just like, has she learned nothing from us? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's also fun when people will have, you know, because sometimes you just need some names, like who's Stella? Why is she in these sentences? You need some names of people to be in your sentences. And sometimes people will come up with cute recurring characters from like, if they're watching a particular TV show, they'll like start, you know, naming characters in their their class about things. David Adger's book, Language Unlimited, he uses his cat and his husband as the example it's people so in these sentences, which is very charming. How did you come up with examples for Because Internet? So I particularly wanted in Because Internet to not have the people in the example sentences seem gendered. Like sometimes you see a lot of sort of Johns and Marys in example sentences, and I just think that's boring. There's a lot of Stella's buying snacks for her brother, Bob. <laughs> like, those are sort of, you know, very generic Anglo names. And I was like, well, this is kind of dull. And also that because in Because Internet, the book is trying to be sort of fun and interesting for people. I thought if I make sort of silly example person names, that will make it more fun to read. And that's sort of one of my goals, right? Mm -hmm. So I deliberately sort of used the Boaty McBoatface method of coming up with example sentences. Okay. <laughs> what does that look like? Can I read you an example? Sure. Okay. You're more likely to start using a new word from Friendy McNetwork, who shares a lot of mutual friends with you, and less likely to pick it up from Rando McRandomface, who doesn't share any of your friends, even if you and Rando follow each other just like you and Friendy do. I like that if you had just used Stella and Bob, by the time we got to you and Bob would use more words in common, because I can't remember if Bob is the one you're friends with. 
Exactly. And so naming them after like the trait that they're supposed to have, like Friendy McNetwork is the one you have a lot of mm-hmm. shared friends with, and Rando is the one that you, you know them, but you don't have any friends in common. Then when you get to the second half of the sentence, even if you and Rando follow each other just like you and Friendy do, it's really easy to track which one is which in the earlier part of the sentence. So there's sort of practical considerations, but also I found it kind of fun to, you know, they're gender neutral. <laughs> they're clearly not anyone's real name. And so they're sort of fanciful and a bit fun. I always like a bit of whimsy when it comes to examples. So in our recent auxiliaries episode, we really leaned heavily into the farm theme that we created for that episode. <laughs> yes, we did. Because it's sometimes when you know you're going to need a whole bunch of examples in a, you know, a text or a, an episode, it's fun to sort of theme them so that you're not just sort of reaching for the same. Like, I think we use examples like I like cake a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like I eat ice cream, like a lot of our examples about like ice cream and cake, which is which is fun. I mean, we do like both of these things. But sometimes if for an episode that's going to be really example heavy, using like horses and farmyard animals and stuff is sort of a fun way to make it a little bit more distinct from other episodes. And this is where you can really tell the difference between a piece of linguistic work where the examples have come from someone's intuitions to illustrate something compared to when the focus has been on finding examples from the stories and recordings and conversations that people have that are much more spontaneous, where they might not always be so smooth and perfect, like you might be missing the person who's doing the thing in the pair story, but there's a really great example of how it has some kind of particular emphasis or spin. So whether you use created examples or found examples can really change the flavor of how you're doing your analysis. Right. And I think ideally, one wants to have sort of a balance of both. It can be useful to have things that are easier to compare to other languages because they're more similar. Mm -hmm. And then also you really want to consider the language in and of itself and not be always forcing it into the mold of, well, let's be able to compare it. Also, we want to see like, what are people doing in this language when you don't have, you know, a preconceived idea of what you're doing with them. So it's sort of a balance between those two types of things. And one's easier to work with. And one is potentially going to give you insights that you weren't looking for. And on top of juggling that, it's also worth paying attention to whether you're beginning to get a bit of a kind of bias in the examples in terms of the vibes as well as what's happening linguistically. Yeah, a lot of these examples are coming from like the 60s and 70s, and they sort of present this very kind of bucolic view of what types of things people talk about. Uh, I noticed that there's a lot of male entities in a lot mm. of these senses, except for our friend Stella, to who we call. <laughs> but Stella's doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, you know, she's she's getting all those things for her brother Bob. But, you know, the pair story has like a, a farmer with a mustache and a tree, and it has a boy on a bicycle, and uh, I think it has a girl go by on a bike as well. But like, there's a lot more male entities in several of these examples. Same with the frog story, which has like a little boy and a frog. And mm-hmm. it might be that gender signifiers in different cultures are different, and that some people read these stories and read the characters gender neutrally or read them as female. And I don't want to say that like this isn't a possibility. But from the English perspective of people who are composing these, they're gender biased in a particular way. For sure. And it's not just vibes. There's a great paper from 1997 by Macaulay and Bryce that looks at just how gender stereotyping happens, especially in syntax examples for sentence structure. And they do see not only there are more examples where they use men or male names, but if they do have women or female names in the examples, they are usually being acted upon or required to chase down snacks for their brothers. (laughs) 
I think that one may be particular to the please call Stella example, but so you're more <laughs> likely to have a sentence that's like, John saw Mary than you are Mary saw John, mm-hmm. even though both of those are sort of equally valid. But there was, for a while, this was like wild to me when I learned it. For a while, there were explicit like style guide policies that said, you know, by default, you should prefer male names in the subject position and female names in the object position. Wow. I'm like, whoa, that was like a policy at some okay. point. Okay. Was it, it's not even like unconscious bias. It's deliberate choice. <laughs> Yeah, that was a deliberate choice back in the day. Like that was a a style guide thing. And undoing that now that it's become this sort of unconscious thing that people are still doing is more challenging. Um, The fun thing, I guess, about how a lot of example sentences in sort of old school syntax papers use John and Mary and Bill Mm -hmm. is that there is someone who took a bunch of example sentences from papers since they refer to the same people and stitched them together into a single sort of narrative. About the adventures of John and Mary and Bill. Oh, another in our children's picture book series. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> this is like the C-spot run uh, of linguistics. <laughs> it's not only worth paying attention to who is doing what, but the what that is happening. Mm. And there's this really unfortunate fact that when you want to have a sentence where someone is doing something to someone else, the best in terms of like showing stuff linguistically thing to have them do is hitting. Oh, no. (laughs) Because it's very clear that there's one animate, active person doing something to another entity, and it's very distinct and clear and active. And it's something where you can have an animate person acting on another animate person. So, for example, like if you cut the bread or something, Mm -hmm. you have an animate acting on an inanimate, like bread or cheese or something. So it's sort of more clear who's doing what to who. Uh, because the the cheese isn't going to come around and try to cut me. Uh, <laughs> unless I have a very sharp cheddar. Dun, dun, dun. Uh. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, whereas if you have like, you know, the girl hit the boy or something and little, like little kids sometimes hit each other. That's the sort of more benign version of that example. It's true. People sometimes hit each other. This is a thing that you can talk about in languages. It's very often transitive, but also it can lead to these uncomfortable example sentences where you're like, ah, this seems to be reinforcing certain types of patterns of violence. Especially when you're writing, say, an entire book that's a descriptive grammar of a language. And again and again, you just have these men hitting other people and animals. And you're like, I don't think this adequately respects what's happening linguistically, but I feel really off about what it's showing people culturally. And it may not even be about this culture. It's about what the linguist is trying to do. And sometimes people try to replace this with a verb that's less violent, like kiss. Mm, Also a bit weird. (laughs) But like that gets into consent issues. You know, if you just go around kissing people, they might not like that. (laughs) So you'd say, well, why not use a verb like see? But the thing is, see often does extra additional things in the structure in many languages. Like in some languages, you have to use C plus a word meaning like at or to. Mm-hmm. So you can't just see someone, you see at someone or see to someone. So if you want sort of a very straightforwardly transitive example, something like C is like you have to sort of test it to see whether it works in the language. So yeah, it's it's very complicated because there aren't a ton of verbs that involve people directly acting on other people, and sometimes they have meanings that you don't want to introduce. And so between what you're trying to do linguistically, what level of language you're analysing, and then how you want to present those examples and the language that you're working with, uh, balancing what's happening with example sentences is really hard. Right. 
And in addition to the named entity sometimes having a gender bias, there's also when you're working on a given language, people will often sort of pick a couple common names in that language to use. I think a lot of Japanese examples use the name Taro, which is a relatively common name. Mm-hmm. I've learned some, you know, common names in various languages when you have someone who's doing a paper and they've like, oh yeah, these are the two common names that we're going to use. You know, picking a couple common names in a given language sort of works. But in English, where there are lots of English speakers from lots of different cultures who have lots of different backgrounds, if we sort of leave ourselves with John and Mary, that also presents this sort of 1960s old school, like very waspy version of who could be an English speaker. The great thing is that you don't have to do this hard work yourself. There's been this great project called the Diverse Names Generator, where they've done the work for you of finding names that skew masculine or skew feminine or gender neutral and come from a range of different linguistic and cultural backgrounds. And these names on the Diverse Names Generator website, which is very easy to use, have International Phonetic Alphabet Transcription. So if you don't necessarily know how to pronounce them, you can see them there. And you can add contributions yourself if you think, oh, there could be some more names. So you could just use like a baby names book, and I'm sure people have. But one of the advantages that this has is it lets you filter for certain types of things that might be relevant to linguists. So sometimes you want to have like the names in your example sentences. So you want the first one to have a name that begins with A, and the next one a name that begins with B, and the next one a name that begins with C or something, just to sort of help keep track of the different names of participants. Mm -hmm. And so you can also do things like filter for certain types of lengths or certain types of initial letters to make them balance out for other types of things you might want in your example sentences. I've also seen recommendations to just use gender neutral, especially very short names for all of your sentences. So names like Lee or Alice or Pat, Sam. The sort of complication of this is that sometimes gender neutral names shift depending on the decade. So like one of these earlier recommendations has Kim as a recommended gender neutral name. And I don't know if that name reads as gender neutral anymore. Hmm. A good reminder that even as we use sample texts that have become traditional in linguistics, it's also worth revisiting them and thinking about what we want to have present in the examples that we create. Right. And so in addition to, you know, making things that are in conversation with this linguistic lineage where there may be hundreds or thousands of examples in a given language, thinking, okay, what could be the sort of future set of examples that we want to use or the future sort of text that we want to use? And what are the sort of gaps that we're trying to fill in as far as figuring out what we might want to be able to compare across languages in the future? For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar stickers, and aesthetic IPA posters, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter. My blog is allthingslinguistic.com. And my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Lingthusiasm is able to keep existing thanks to the support of our patrons. If you want to get an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now, or if you just want to help keep the show running ad-free, go to patreon.com slash lingthusiasm or follow the links from our website. Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans and be the first to find out about new merch and other announcements. Recent bonus topics include our 2022 listener survey responses, using linguistics in the workplace, and our very special, very soothing Lingthusi ASMR episode, where you read the Harvard sentences to you in a calm, soothing voice. 
If you can't afford to pledge, that's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm and maybe Lingthusiasmr to anyone in your life who's curious about language. Lingthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Our senior producer is Claire Gorn, our editorial producer is Sarah Doppiarella, and our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui Billens. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic! Lingthusiastic!